Oh, good morning. It's good to be here today. I was just thinking it's kind of a contrast about six hours ago, or no, about eight hours ago, I was dispatching officers to shootings and fights and everything else, and now seven hours, seven hours later, here I am, and uh, with the people of God, and it's quite a contrast, but I prefer this one, believe me. You know, it's just a good thing to be in bed around 11 o'clock or maybe 12 if you're really going to live a little dangerously, though. It's a lot better just to be home in bed at that time of night. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to John chapter 4. Actually, I was thinking of uh, that verse when Ginny was singing. I was thinking of the verse in 1 Peter 1. You don't need to turn to it. Just go to John 4. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He really is real. I want to talk about a passage of scripture that uh, is familiar probably to many of us. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. My name is Dean asked me this morning just before he got up, did I want the water on the left or on the right hand side? <laughs> Thank you. I've been asked before, do I want it iced, you know, lukewarm? And uh, finally one day they asked me that again at one place I was speaking. I said, you know, just bring it up clean. That's all that matters. <laughs> Too many choices when you're giving me all these different options of how I want my water. John chapter 4, there's a little bit to read here, but I want to emphasize particularly verses 19 to 26. The theme this morning is save to worship. You might think, you know, when you think about worship, you might think, well, I wonder what verses in the scripture talk about that. And this is actually a wonderful discourse that Jesus gives on the theme of worship which should be something that is, as for a believer, very much something that we're occupied with. Because this on earth is a dress rehearsal. And it won't be long that we're going to be in his very presence where we will see him and we'll be worshiping him at his feet. But just picking up the context, so we see the context here for maybe those who aren't too familiar with the passage. John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Then or there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have 
is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God bless this wonderful passage of his word to us this morning as we chew on it a little bit before we go home today. Reader's Digest had a story of a little girl a few years ago who was eating an apple in the back seat of her car. Mommy said to the little girl, why is my apple turning brown? Her mother explained, because after you ate the skin off, the meat of the apple became, came in contact with the air that caused it to oxidize, thus changing the molecular structure that turned the apple into a different color. The girl pondered for a moment and then said, Mommy, what are you talking about? <laughs> I pray this morning as we open up God's word that we'll understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. That we'll leave here and we won't be as ignorant maybe as we were on this particular subject. We'll understand what he is and what he's saying to us and how we apply this wonderful word to our lives. Someone has said the gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And a man will worship something. Have no doubt about that either. That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. It's also been said that most people tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Something for us to chew on and think about. You know, the wonderful thing about the scriptures are, and what God's message to us is that you today, you have been saved to worship. That is God's calling for you. He wants us to become more like his dear son. And he wants us to come to this place in our lives where increasingly we are adoring the Lord. We're blessing him. We're praising him. And the more we get to know him, the more that this is just flowing very freely out of our lives, out of the lips of our mouth. The object, the object of why God has saved you is so that you might worship him. He's a God, the Bible says, that's jealous in the right sense of the word and that he wants our affection and he wants our praise and he's worthy of it. Tozer said, a very godly, godly man who wrote a number of wonderful books years ago said that God has provided his salvation that we might be individually and personally vibrant children of God. 
loving God with all our hearts and worshiping him in the beauty of holiness. And in this wonderful passage in John chapter 4, this woman has a close encounter with the divine kind, Jesus himself. The text told us, as we read, that he was at Jacob's well, and it was in this place called Nablus. And Jesus, perfect God, fully man, he's tired and he's thirsty. And he meets a local woman from Samaria. And again, we won't go too much into that portion of the story, but he begins to gently expose her need of God's forgiveness. And he starts it, and Jesus was the master at conversation, the master evangelist, by asking her something that she could identify with, and that was for a drink of water. She's at a well. He's at her level, which is something important for us to remember who know the Lord, that when we talk to someone, we talk to them at the level that they can understand, that they can identify with, of where they're at. And if you read it through the text, you can understand that as she's going on in the story, she starts to get a bit defensive when he says something where he says, you know what, you've spoken truly. When he said to you, you know what, the guy that you have right now isn't your husband. The one that you're living with now. And you know what? You've had five husbands prior to him. And of course, some of us probably are wondering, well, I wonder what, what circumstances behind all that. And the text doesn't tell us. But he does say that you've answered truly, which gives the impression that this was something that obviously wasn't right that this was a woman that had been in in sin. And so she does something that is still happening today in 2006. It really hasn't changed. She gets a bit defensive when you start kind of zeroing in on something to do with that three-letter word that we really don't like, sin, and wants to change the subject. She gets a bit defensive, and she wants to engage Jesus in something that's a little bit safer, a subject that's just a little bit easier to talk about. And it's the subject of worship. What's the best time? What's the best place? Maybe even what's the best style? And she says when he points out that thing about her life, you can kind of just imagine how large her eyes were at that point. And she says, and look at it again, verse 19 and 20, I can see that you are a prophet. And this is her theme. She goes, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. When it came to this woman, when she's thinking about worship, she, in her mind, in her very simple mind, she said, you know what? I see two options of how you can worship God. You can go with the Samaritan method, or you can go with the Jewish method. And what's really interesting about what Jesus says, he says, you know what? The external issues of style and location and place really isn't the issue. Notice what he said in verses 21 to 25. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So it's not about location. And he goes on to say in verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Interesting thing about Samaritan style of worship, and you can read up along this, and it's it's fascinating to find out the fact that when they worshiped, it was done in ignorance. That's what Jesus means when he says you worship that which you do not know, or another way to say that is what you comprehend. Their spiritual knowledge, the Samaritans, was limited because they rejected all of the Old Testament except the first five books 
of the Bible, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Their religion, if you like, or their worship was characterized by enthusiastic worship. But the problem was it was without proper knowledge. If you like, they worshiped in spirit or in in enthusiasm, but not in truth. And then you flip side and you say, okay, well, what about the Jewish style? What about their method? And in effect, theirs wasn't much better in one sense. They accepted all the books of the Old Testament. They had the truth, but they lacked enthusiasm. They lacked spirit for God. Remember when the Pharisees prayed or gave alms or fasted? And Jesus often said, you know what? I see your actions, but your hearts aren't in it. You're going through the motions, but your hearts aren't in it. Mark 7, verse 6, Jesus says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is the amazing thing about our God. Something that we take comfort in, maybe something we kind of go, whoa. Is he sees our actions, and he admires and he appreciates genuine acts of service and worship and kind deeds. But he goes further than what we can do because he can see into each of our hearts here today. He understands exactly where this is coming from, from within, what the motivation is, why we're here, why we say we serve him, why we say we want to live a life that pleases him. He understands the heart. And I'm glad he does because that separates him from everybody else because he's God. Jesus of the, of the scribes and Pharisees, he called them hypocrites. He, he goes in a passage, he says, you're phonies. And he has this most descriptive word, really, that uh, you'd hate to be said of yourself. He says, you know what? You're whitewashed tombs. That's what you are. Full of dead men's bones. Unfortunately, if we've heard anything in the news the last few days, we know the significance that sometimes someone even in the prominent evangelical field, can appear to be one thing. But something else is going on in the inside. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful. But by the grace of God, there go I. We need to be checking that heart. This morning at work, a lady had a rapid heartbeat. Actually, one of the ones that works with us, as opposed to one of the ones we're trying to help. And she was checking her pulse, and she said, my heart's just racing. We need to be checking our hearts to see if we're doing okay, if God is really near and dear to us so that we're not, and it's not said of us, so that the name of Jesus is maligned to say of us, hypocrites, phonies, and whitewashed tombs. That's what he said about these people, the Jews. And so there's this problem because the worship that occurred on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans were was, if you like, enthusiastic heresy. But the worship at Jerusalem was barren, And it was lifeless orthodoxy. So what would you choose? And this is what this woman is saying. I wouldn't want either. Someone has said enthusiastic heresy is heat without light. Barren orthodoxy is light without heat. There's a problem. Jesus, rightly so, rebukes both styles of worship. And you know he rebuked it when he said in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must It's not an option here. Must worship him in spirit and in truth. You might be thinking this morning, 
Actually, we've just crossed into the afternoon now. Maybe your problem today is that you hold firmly. And that's a good thing. You hold firmly to sound doctrine. And praise God for that. But genuinely so, you would admit, I've lost my enthusiasm. I've lost my enthusiasm for the truth. You know the truth. You know the way the truth and the life, Jesus himself and the truths about him. But really, there are other things that you're more excited about. And you know that. I know that. There's something else that maybe has got your heart. Something else that you have more passion about. Something else that when you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning, or in my case, I go to bed in the morning and wake up at night, it's the thing that you think about. It's that thing on your mind. It's the thing you dream about. But it's not the Lord. It's not himself. God can change us. He can change our hearts to where we're just once again on fire for him, on fire for the things of God. We're seeking first the things of God, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness isn't just a burden, but it's our desire of our hearts. He can do that. There's a passage in a verse at the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about, let us be grateful as one translation and worship God in a way that pleases him. I mean, that's the bottom line here. We want to worship the Lord with our lives, with our lips, in a way that pleases him. That you can think about it, that if Jesus right now physically were sitting in this room or he was at your breaking of bread service earlier, he would say, you know what, I was really pleased with that worship that was offered up to me today. Wouldn't that be an honor for him to say that of any of the churches that proclaim his name? God, what is it, how is it that's going to please you? I want to suggest there's three characteristics with the few minutes we have remaining of the kind of worship that God is pleased with. And the first one you might think is really elementary, but that's, that's me. I speak elementary. I haven't graduated high school yet. Our worship flows from being saved. That's the first key. You can't get the cart before the horse on this one. Verse 22, you worship that which you do not know. You don't know me is what he was saying to that woman at the well. You don't know me, so therefore you cannot properly worship me yet. First things first, you've got to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to be born again. You've got to come to this place where you understand that he has died on the cross for you. That that blood, every precious drop of that blood that was shed was for you. That he's your all in all. That he's your Lord and Savior and that you desire him. You want to acknowledge yourself and you want to unite yourself to him as the lover of your heart and soul. And when you come to that place, the Bible says then you can know what it means to be saved and then you can worship God. How many folks today do you wonder all over the world that are going to places of worship, if you say, if you like, using that word generally speaking, but actually don't know him? They're, they're walking in, they're singing songs, they're reading verses, they're saying things back, but they haven't come to the place of receiving Christ yet. There's even folks who are up in, sadly, in situations where they're sharing a podium like where I am this morning, all over the world, who are saying some kind of a message, but actually haven't been saved. And so he said to her, you know what? You need this living water that I'm offering to you. And you know what? At first, she's not understanding. She's thinking, well, sure, I'd love to have some water where I don't have to go anymore and draw it from the well. 
And he says, you know what? I'm not talking about that kind of water. I'm talking about myself, this living water, where you'll thirst no more. Think about it today, those of you who've come to Christ. Remember how you were so thirsty? You were just looking for something. You were longing for something to satisfy that quench. You found Jesus Christ, and he satisfied that thirst. He satisfied that hunger. And you know, the exciting thing about when he would challenge the woman about this, you look at her, her response at the end of the chapter in John chapter 4, and she, she goes to the town, and she tells him, you know what, I, I think I've met the Messiah. And she's saved. She's wonderfully saved in this conversation. Verses 39 and 42, just take a quick peek at that. It says, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. This is a woman, Jesus, from the standpoint of that culture, as a man, he should never have talked to her. That was what the Jews said and thought. She was a Samaritan. She was a half-breed. She was a despised person. You didn't talk to a woman. You didn't talk to this kind of woman. Jesus broke those barriers, and he did. He didn't have to go that route, but he did because of love for her. He had a divine appointment with that woman. And because of that situation, it says the city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And he said, she said, he told me all the things that I have done. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a fascinating turn of events. The Samaritans of that village no more worshipped in ignorance like they had been. Mark 10.45 says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his goal. And again, like I said earlier, he came so that we might worship him. That was the purpose. And so our worship now, as those who have been born again, it springs from faithfulness for who Jesus is and for what he's done for us. That's the motivation of why we want to praise him and thank him. It's not in order that we might be able to do these things in order to get to heaven. It's because it's just simply out of the bottom of our heart, from the gut, if you like, that it's just something that we want to do now because we understand what he has done for us. And so we understand that now what we can do is how we can get to know who this God is as we look at his word and we discover more about what he's like. And we say, you know what? This is what God is like. This is what the Lord Jesus is like. And I'm going to worship him for this wonderful quality about him, this wonderful truth about him, that he's a kind God. I see examples in the scripture of his kindness. And therefore, I worship and praise him for being a kind God. Think of all the examples of when we pray, one of the best ways to pray in this new relationship we have with the Lord is to claim his promises. It's to say, you know what? This verse says this about you. Therefore, I know I can trust you in this because of this promise about you in your word. Amen. He's faithful to his promises. It says in 2 Peter 1, his precious promises. And that's what they are. And we can claim him in no matter what situation. I think of this uh, man I've been visiting in the hospital who's a friend of our family. A number of people have been coming to see him. He's been uh, saved a number of years. Very faithful servant of the Lord. And there's been this pillow that a number of people have signed for him. And just with a verse or a name, it's like in a shape of a heart. And I was looking at a, one of the signatures was William McDonald. And it said something, a very brief thing, and it said Psalm 12.1 is what I thought it said. Because I thought I saw a colon there. 
And I said to this man, I said, Dave, I'm not familiar with what Psalm 12.1 is. I wonder what promise that is for you in this scripture. So I opened it up and in front of him, it said this. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And I looked again at the pillow and it wasn't 12.1, it was 121. And there was a big difference between Psalm 121, which says, where I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. I actually, he smiled quite broadly at that and even managed to chuckle in his hospital bed because I said, well, now I know what Psalm 12.1 is. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. Not the one you want to give to somebody on their sickbed. <laughs> but how wonderful to know the promises of God and to be able to turn to that. And I said, Dave, a couple of days later, I said, is there a passage you'd like me to read? And he said, Psalm 121. And I said, okay, I'll read that for you. We know the truth. And now we can worship God for the truth that's revealed in his word about himself. And that really moves us on to the second point of what God wants in our worship. He wants us first to know him so that we can really worship our father in spirit and in truth. But he does want our worship to be biblical. It must be of the truth. Verse 23, worship that pleases God must be scripturally accurate and not scripturally, if you like, ignorant. Don't you hear a lot of times, and maybe you did this too, and the temptation is to sometimes do this, is to say, I, I, I think God is like and, you know, I think God would do this. And I, I see God like this. And you listen to someone who's talking like that and you think, oh, I wonder where they're getting that from. Is, is that your opinion? And I appreciate your opinion, but how do you know God's like that? Well, I just think he is. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's just how I think he is. And that's how he should be. But that's unbiblical. We need to know when we say God is like, we're able to prove it from what's in the word. That's the basis of why we know what God is like. We worship out of an understanding of the truth that's contained in the word. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. I love this section of scripture in Nehemiah chapter 8. You don't need to turn to it, but it shows the power of God's word to motivate true, sincere, genuine worship. The story basically is after Nehemiah and the people had completed the building of the wall of Jerusalem, the people, they ask Ezra to read the scroll that contained the word of God. This is a fascinating passage in Nehemiah 8. And Ezra opened the scroll in sight of all the people. And interestingly enough, all the people immediately stood up at the presentation of God's word. And then it says this, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That was a response to what happened when the word of God was opened, when the scrolls were opened. New Testament example, let the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, richly Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That word of God needs to get deep, deep, deep inside us. So when those storms come, like example, our sister was reading in the letter this morning, when those storms come and those trials come, we've got deep roots that are in the word. You think, you know what, I got, I'm too busy. I got too much else on my plate. Don't you know what my life is like? Don't you know what's going on? Well, with all due respect, nothing should take the place of that. That of getting into the word and getting those roots 
deep. Psalm 47, verse 7, God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding in truth. Remember reading somebody saying, what does God think about the way we sing? You say, well, I'm, I'm sure he depicts, because he knows all things, that I don't have a very good voice. And he definitely can tell if I'm, if I'm off. And so that's why maybe you sing low. Well, I'm not talking about that. Because I believe that somehow, some wonderful way, by the time it gets up to heaven, it's been filtered. And it's all perfect in how he's hearing. So don't let that ever hold you back. I'm not talking about the quality of voices, but the honesty of our words. Someone has said this, and it was pretty poignant. It got the point across. We love, this, we love the hymn, I Surrender All. But really, maybe we're singing, I Surrender Some. We love the song, the hymn, Just As I Am. But maybe in our hearts, it's really just as I pretend to be. Or, Oh, How I Love Jesus, wonderful hymn. But really for us, it's Oh, How I Like Jesus. God wants us to sing with understanding and with truth behind those words. And, you know, even there's times when you say, you know what, I don't know if I can really sing this song and I really, I really can mean it. I'm not suggesting you don't sing. What I am suggesting is this. Turn that song into a prayer. Say, you know, before God, I'm singing this and I, I'm not singing this as though I think I've arrived at this. But this is the desire of my heart that this would be true. And so even as you're singing scripture, as you're singing hymns, it can be a prayer that God is actually hearing from you. He wants us to worship with sincerity. You know yourself. One of the things we admire about one another is as we admire the fact and we appreciate the fact that people are sincere. I have never heard somebody fault another person because they would say, you know what, they're too sincere. And that's a bad thing. Everyone pretty much understands when they're doing a character analysis that when it comes to sincerity, people think, you know what, that's, that's good. I appreciate someone like that. Well, God is saying the same thing to us. He's saying, I just want you folks, I want you, Randy, I want all of us, just be sincere. Be honest with me. I already know what you're thinking. I already know what's on your heart. I already know what's going to be on your heart a week from now. So let's just be real with each other. I'm sorry, I'm slightly talking a little bit like a teenager now, but that's, let's be real. And lastly, our worship must be real. Verse 23 and 24. Worship in spirit and in truth. Must be yielded to his spirit. First and foremost, we must be yielded to the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But interestingly enough, in this verse 24, when Jesus says those who must worship him in spirit and in truth, it's suggested that when he's saying in spirit there, in that context, he's talking about the human spirit, the inner spirit, that which is dwelling from within, that person that makes you up. God wants us to be worshiping him genuinely in spirit and in truth. It, worship flows from the inside out. Like he said to the Pharisees, he said, you know, you're honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It takes place on the inside and works itself out. Also, our thoughts must be centered on God. David worshiped God in his spirit. He said, my heart overflows with a good thing. And, you know, the interesting thing about that word overflow is it means it boils over. That's what praise and worship is. 
as you're thinking about the truths of God's person and his character, and as you're meditating on these things, these wonderful promises of his character and who he is and what he's all about, there's an overflowing as your heart and your mind is centered on God. And you've experienced it, haven't you? That when you're thinking about the Lord, when your mind is really occupied, preoccupied with him, then you you start to think and the scriptures start coming to mind and the Spirit of God starts to enlighten you and remind you of things about who he is and how he's been faithful in this situation in your life, how he's great in this situation, how he's a great God. He's a God of love and justice and mercy and grace and how he provides all of these wonderful things for us. And the more we get to know the Lord, the wonderful thing about the word is the more we get to know him, you're never going to say, I guarantee you this, you will never say, well, that's not something I did. I, I didn't. I don't like that now that I've discovered that about the Lord. The more beautiful he becomes, the more you get to know him, the more you get to understand him. In contrast with ourselves, as we get to know each other a little bit better, we say, well, that's a scenario I could see that they need to kind of work on or grow in their life. And I'd like to that would be great, especially if you live with someone, you might say that. But you don't say that about the Lord as you get to know him. Because everything you think about him, it's good. We may not like it, but it's good. And it's good for us. Someone has said, praise is the boiling over of a hot heart. And I would just ask you this morning, if you were to take your temperature, how hot is that heart? And lastly, to worship him in spirit, we should not fear, in the right sense of the word, emotion. In this sense, married 25 years now. Some of you have been married a lot longer. And if you said to your spouse, husbands, you said to your wife, I love you. You know, Cindy would say to me, well, uh, what is it you love about me? And I don't know, I know, just kind of love you. Where is it? Yeah, I don't think you'd be convinced, ladies. But you said, you know what? If you said for, with sincerity and you said, you know, I love you, Cindy. You know, I just want to tell you, I, you know, I said, whoa, that's getting a little bit too emotional to say it like that. But to, you know, to be able to say, I love you, Lord, and to mean it and to have the feeling behind the words God already knows but feel free to say that. A.W. Tozer once wrote, and I quoted him earlier, he said that people would tell him that they would never allow feeling to have any part in their spiritual life and experience. And he said, worship is to feel in the heart. It's some kind of a, a response. It's, I, we see it all the time. If you go home today and you turn on this thing and you watch the Raiders or the 49ers if they're playing, and you watch or you watch any football game or the World Series that just passed, you watch people and they're, they're doing crazy kinds of things. And I'm not suggesting that by any means, but we see people who are excited about sports and we see their passion. And I've sometimes wondered, you know, it's just if, if the people of God, myself included, had that passion, genuine passion, not hype, but a genuine heart passion for God, how different might things be? How different might things be? And notice something. You know, when the woman at the well, in closing, when the woman at the well was confronted with these truths about who he was, about who the Messiah was, that he was right there in her midst. When she said, you know what, I hear he's coming. And he goes, I'm here. 
And I don't know what happened there, but I can imagine she just, I don't know, she felt her feet. I don't know if her eyes got as large as saucers. And all of a sudden the light bulb came on and she said, wow. And she was convicted of her sin. And then she was gloriously saved, but she was motivated to believe and she was motivated to go tell this town. She, she, you have to understand, she would have really been so inhibited and prohibited from doing that as a woman and from Samaria that she would go and tell the rest of her folks, her countrymen, was something that you normally wouldn't do as a woman. And she did. She broke those barriers because she was in love with the Lord. She had been saved and she couldn't hold back. And what happens is, when we worship God, there may be someone right here today that was, has, who does not know the Lord who's been watching how we worship. When you tell somebody at your job, somebody at home, somebody at work, you know, and you said, you know what? I just, I just love this truth about God. I mean, they might be, what are you talking about? But you say, you know, this, this quality, this, this aspect of his character, this is just brilliant. And you could say something like, in a very natural way, you could say, you know, I just love him for that. You're going to probably get a good raised eye on that one. But what opportunity might that have to be an, an opportunity for evangelism? Part of our eternal occupation will be to praise the Lamb, as Revelation says, is worthy. But praise is also our present calling while we're here on this earth. And brothers and sisters, we should long to grow in this dress rehearsal that we're in right now, that we might be worshipers of God. Jesus said the Father is seeking. It's interesting. It's one of the only times in Scripture where it says something about what the Father is seeking. He is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you hear your Father calling out to you in this area? Let's pray. Lord, we do want to acknowledge that we bless your name. We want to grow as your people in worshiping you in in spirit and in truth. We want to thank you for the change that you brought to this woman at Samaria. We think think of the change that you brought in our lives and we bless your name. We pray that we might be By the help of your spirit, wholeheartedly, single-mindedly devoted to you, getting to know you better in your word, and just growing as worshipers. We know you're seeking this, Lord, for us, and we just pray that we'll please you as we worship you together as a people and individually in our lives each day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.